On this week in sales, we're going to be taking a look at the counterintuitive science behind why salespeople avoid big opportunities, real-time virtual sales assistants on Zoom calls, the cutest dog in the world, and much, much more. My name is Will Barron, founder of Salesman.org, and joining me, the co-host of this show, the sausage to my dog, the golden to my retriever, Victor, sales royalty, Antonio, see, I'm ruining this now because I'm going to pull out the curtain. No, wait, wait. Pull out the curtain, it's happening. Victor told me before the show he prefers me to call him sales royalty rather than sales legend. Yeah, I like quite fit it in in real time. I like royalty better than I told you. Legend just sounds like it's it's reserved for somebody else. I don't know. And and since you're in the UK, I just want to feel a little monarchy in this show. But the whole sausage to the dog, I just have a problem with that one. Well, I don't know why. The gold to my retriever, I like that. Let's keep that in. Let's delete the other one. It's because I baited you. I baited you with the, the sausage. You didn't know where I was going. Yeah, I, I know where you're going, man. By, by by the way, it's, it's a callback to the, towards the end of the show. It's a fantastic transition there, Victor. It was. I kind of wrote it for you. But anyway, Will, how are you doing today, man? I'm good. I'm ready. Uh, there's some good news. This is the first week we've had actually interesting news for a little bit of a while. We don't have to bullshit this episode to get our way from one end of it to the other. It's actually going to be fascinating. Victor, how are you? Are you ready to rock and roll? Man, I'm I'm good to go. Uh, here in the U.S., cool weather is now setting in. Life is a little better because it was miserable for the last two, three weeks. A lot of raining in the last two, three days. You guys are used to rain. That's your that's your life over there. So, uh, Other than that, life is good. Business is good. Uh Yeah, we're good to go. Good man. Let's jump into some sales news. So, Defy Partners lead a $3 million round into sales intelligent platform, Aircover. This article's from techcrunch.com. And Aircover, the whole point of the business is to develop and continue developing its real-time sales intelligent platform. The company aims to give sales teams insights relevant to closing the sale as they are meeting with customers Uh, covers conversational AI software integrates with Zoom and automates part of the sales process to lead more effective conversations. I've got a few quotes here that we can dive into, Victor. The reason I put this one in the doc today is you've been talking about this. I'm not so interested in this. I'm not so keen. I feel like if salespeople are trained appropriately, they don't need necessarily to be prodded and poked one way or the other. It might knock them out of being in the flow of a conversation and really listening, actively listening to a potential customer. Um, But you've put your hand up and said that this could be a useful tool. So going uh, from two sides here, we've got Zoom, Zoom Zoom's CTO, Brendan, and I've cut off his second name, so Brendan someone, I apologize, sir, says, one of the goals of launching the Zoom SDK was to provide developers with the tools that they need to create valuable and engaging experiences for our mutual customers and integrations ecosystem. Coming from the opposite side of this, Erzoom, Andrew Levy, CEO, says, says we are <laughs> says we are anticipating the knowledge and parsing out key moments to provide leverage to subject matter experts. It's like having a sales assistant with you on a call to handle any issues. Victor, is this what you want to see from technology? Is this what you want to see? Do you want to see salespeople having their hands held by AI when they're on the Zoom meetings? Well, what's interesting about this article, and we should hearken back a little bit to about maybe two or three episodes, uh, two or three episodes ago, when we talked about Brain Shark. Remember that Brain Shark was recording without people's permission during presentations, right? Mm-hmm. Now they're integrating with Zoom to actually pull out that conversation. But and by the way, this is this is Gong, you know, or Chorus.ai in disguise, because what they're doing is basically what you know, Zoom is recording the calls, and then they're going to analyze the conversations. And basically mine those conversations. No, no, this this is in real time. Gong is doing it after the fact, right? Oh, they're doing this in real time. This is like- real time on a Zoom call. You've got essentially text on the screen. You've got icons. You've got direct feedback on the call. I don't believe it. No. <laughs> I'll, I'll, no. I'll, I'll quote no. again from the TechCrunch article. They created Aircover to be a software tool on top of video conferencing that performs real-time transcription of the conversation and then analysis to put the right content in front of the salesperson at the right time based on customer issues and questions. This means that another sales expert doesn't need to be pulled in or an additional call scheduled to provide answers to questions. So a buyer asks you a question, perhaps you're unsure of it, the, the answer to the question, hopefully it's like a technical question as opposed to something that the salesperson should know. But gonna, By the way, I'm going to argue with this. I know what this is. 
I'm pulling the curtain back on this one. Unless, and I could be wrong, Will, so I'll qualify that by saying I could be wrong. I doubt it. Because what they're going to do, what the, I mean, to be able to do this, well, here, let's go with the ideal version of what they're, they're uh, I guess, they're portending to actually produce. And that Hold is to Hold on a second. Don't be saying that they're pretending to produce things. When I'm, te- I'm telling you for the first time you're hearing it, a, a quote and an article on a, you know, a very well-known blog here. Okay. Dear TechCrunch, I have to see it to believe it because what you're what they're trying to tell us. So let's look at this from a from a how this will change the game of sales if what they're saying is true. Good. We could be I could be totally full of it. But that would mean that as you and I are talking, things have to pop up on the side right here on the screen to say we'll just said that. We'll just say they say this. Now, if we'll just said that, say this, I have to actually stop looking at you multitasking, move over and read that, absorb what I just read, figure out how I'm going to respond to your question, and then look right back at you and have to respond to that question. You're telling me they figured this out. No way. I know what they figured out. They figured out off keywords, what they're going to do is trigger pop-ups, almost like little pop-up boxes. Little keyword, you want to highlight this. He mentioned the competition. Here are three things we do different than the competition. And so now... That I believe they can do. I mean, is that really AI? I think that's natural language processing. I don't, I don't consider that AI. Yes, it falls under the umbrella of AI, but I think that's more of a natural language processing capability than it is true machine learning. So I'll, I'll give them that, that it's, it'll just, off of, you know, keywords, it'll trigger a certain content to pop up. It'll be interesting. And by the way, this is where marketing plays a good role, and I think sales and marketing can find a nice overlap is that if sales and marketing get together and create these pop-up bubbles, you know, they can really work together on the messaging within those bubbles. So Forget marketing. We, we don't need marketing for this. This is sales enablement. This is sales engineering. I'm just on aircover.ai, the homepage of this organization, and they have what they're calling here in these diagrams battle cards. So when a competitor, for example... Battle I mean, cards! Battle cards! You know what I, I mean? I, I knew it. Even without looking at it, I told you I knew what they were producing. It's not AI. When a competitor is mentioned, it gives you, for example, uh, silver bullets, telling you uh, issues with that competitor, where you are stronger, where you're weaker, possible objections, how you can win on pricing. And they're not like paragraphs. It's not a script that you're reading. Bullets. But they're just bullets. prompts to keep things top of mind. By the way, this is nothing new. This is truly... I saw this four or five years ago, you know, over in uh, Korea. Literally, this, this idea of the pop-up boxes came from... You know, a company over in Korea, a very large company who in the medical industry, who was within their call centers, they had all these pop-ups on keywords. Now, what's interesting is that these, you, you say marketing is not important. I, no, 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 no. Well, well <laughs> let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Because the biggest battle we have within a company, I'm going to assume I'm in these companies already, is that marketing and sales don't talk to each other. Marketing says, hey, here's the voice of the customer. And salesperson goes, no, it ain't. This is what we want to push. No, that's not. And so if those two could come together and create those battle cards. So, But why does marketing have to be involved in that? What you've just described is sales know the customer's voice, sales know the data, sales know the competitor analysis. Sales should be creating via sales enablement, sales engineering, the content for their own sales team. Market, I don't need a marketer to write some fancy copy around the data that salespeople uh, no. need to have. I don't need You're, fancy graphics. I, I am don't fighting need for. I'm fighting for marketing here because here's what here's what here's where I'm going to say explicitly say, you're missing the boat. Here's why, because let's zoom back. When a product is about to be developed, right? A product is about to be developed. What typically happens? Marketing has to do. I'm not talking marketing flash. I'm talking marketing research has to be done to figure out what the customer wants. Product management then decides to build something. Mm-hmm. Product manager then tells salespeople, now go sell what I just built. Now, the marketing research is where you get the voice of the customers, why they would really want to buy it, and some of the key messaging, especially if it's a new product that salespeople truly don't understand. So a new product launches, that's where sales and marketing can really come together. So this is the issue. That is a incredibly old, outdated way of looking at business. That is how you do business without the internet, right? Without software, without So tools. you're saying... Because what we know now is marketing, marketing is not important. are making a prediction, right? What you described is a focus group, 
which is just bullshit anyway. What you just described is a marketer speaking to two potential customers and, and collating that data and spreading out and, and writing in what they think is the buyer's language. Us salespeople, Victor, are speaking to customers. I know that my marketing collateral says this, this, and this. The most the highest performing salesperson on my team says that's nonsense. What the customer actually wants or the potential customer wants is this, this, and this. I want to not necessarily insulate myself from marketing, but all this wishy-washy high-level uh, data that they're all collecting, and this is obviously massively subjective. Yeah. I'm just trying to have an argument with you. But totally that having data it. that they're trying totally to collect on the high level, marketing. that doesn't relate to the conversations I'm having with individual people. What do you Each view day. marketing as? I do. You, I mean, first of all, focus groups. I, I don't even want to talk about that because I don't even buy into any of that stuff. Surveys don't buy into any of that. People don't, sometimes customers don't even know what they want. So you just am, knocked I've, the, the, the whole leg away from your conversation. No, no, no. The thing is, no. no let, let's look at the real process here because yep. you know you you have very valid points, and that is. The salespeople who are frontline, if we have relationships with customers already, before we, you know, let's say we have products out there, salespeople are talking to the people who know what the hell they want, right? I'm with you on that. They're also telling us, hey, if you had this bell and whistle, I would definitely buy that, right? Uh, so so what, let me just clarify. I'm agreeing with you on who that. Who has that information? Sales. What? So sales. Sales. Sales, so sales, has, has, sales has all the practical information, the right. real information Pro fed back from customers from the actual market as opposed to what you just said, but wait, but wait, wait, surveys, wait, wait. No, you won't let me you won't let me, no, no, you just said that there are a load of nonsense. You're, you're behaving like a, by the way, you're behaving like a politician. You're behaving like a politician. You get the product into the marketplace, but the actual valuable feedback, you, uh, forgive me, am I am I wrong in what I'm saying here? Maybe I misheard you. I know we're on a, we're on a, a, a Skype connection here. It can be a bit laggy. Is what you're saying that the data from marketing is high level, a lot of it nonsensical, and the data from sales that hopefully gets feedback into marketing you're just that, you're is the real finished. data. I, I feel like I'm in a political debate here with you. So, okay, so let me walk through it slowly. You've just been trapped. That's what you're saying. No, 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 I'm, I'm going to walk through it slowly because apparently <laughs> I need to walk it slowly so you'll understand. Hold on a second. I've just sales, been trumped. I know, yeah. No, no, salespeople <laughs> have the frontline data. I, I, that you are totally 100% right. But you know, salespeople always bring that back to marketing. Says, "Hey, or, or product manager, hey, build this because my customer A will buy it." Right? Let's put product management in the middle. Product management goes, "Well, how big is that potential? Come on, we've all had that discussion with salespeople. Okay, if I build this, how much are they going to buy?" Oh, I don't know, I, but I think they'll buy a lot because they're a good customer. That's the Neanderthal sales guy. Oh, oh, oh. So what happens? Hey, let's go to marketing. Let's do. Let's look at the TAM, right? The total addressable market for this product. Start slicing and dicing, looking at data, and see. Look at companies. Can we actually build something that will actually fit, and is there enough market size? They go back to product management and says, all right, I think it's a good product to build, but I would also add this and this and this, because here's what we also found. True marketing people actually call companies and talk to customers directly who've bought the product. True marketing. Come back to product management. Product management now has a blend of what salespeople want and what the marketing people have discovered the market wants. That beautiful combination is where they can find that kumbaya moment to come together on an ironically named battle card. They can find peace on a battle card. Yeah, but what you described is sales enablement, which is the whole genesis of the <laughs> argument that I described. You, by the These way, battle cards have things like sales objections on. Marketing sure. don't know what objections salespeople are facing. Sales enablement does because that's getting fed back to okay. the enablement team or the engineering team. Here's what we're going to do. On this podcast, This Week in Sales, go to thisweekinsales.com, and I want you to leave your opinion. Do you think marketing has a pivotal role in shaping the conversations with the customers along with the salesperson? Or is, is the salesperson just, just that but that's maverick, a that loaded conversation totally. well, well you're loading them no 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 you just said does marketing have a pivotal role in this massive thing of course Call it has it has a pivotal role in it okay does it okay. have the most important role no Salespeople should be feeding back to sales enablement and that can go up the hierarchy of you know micro to macro if you want to go uh kind of use that kind of analogy all right all so i'm me, saying me... victor is okay. that we don't need to be palming off stuff to marketing anymore sales is coming to its own i disagree I disagree. I, th I think marketing has a more prominent role. Uh, my, my, my one last argument. My one last argument. I I have a trigger event. I need a product. Something happens. I need a software product. Now, do I pick up the phone and call a sales guy? 
or do I go online and begin to do research that marketing is put up there to begin to understand what's available in the market, right? And where does that information come from? Yeah, the magical marketing cloud of people who understand what's going on in the market. Yeah, if you are in a specific part of an industry where you are not pushing, where you're pushing for inbound sales, that works. If you're a consulting company, if I've got a problem and I want a plumber, I'm going to call a plumber. I'm going to go directly to the source. I'm not going to Google how to solve the issue myself. By so the it way, depends so on the industry that you, you're debating on. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. In one space. When you call a plumber, though, okay, let's go with the plumbing analogy. So yeah. you got a leak, need a plumber. Where do you go? Online. And what do you do? You begin reading the reviews. Who put the reviews up there? I'm sure. The I'm customers. Sure. Direct well, yeah. feedback. Direct feedback. Not to do marketing. By the way, who's monitoring those reviews? To make sure, and then when you got a negative review, who's monitoring those negative reviews? I dare say customer service slash marketing might be up to this. Yeah, but I could also say X, Y, Z slash the, the arguments and, that I'm trying to portray as well. And by the way, when negative reviews are put up, who's the person on Twitter who responds? Customer Market. service. And I'd put customer service under sales. Okay, I think that's where we disagree. I, I would put customer service. Well, I guess customer service does belong under sales, but I wouldn't okay. do the job. Well, I would not bombshell. Let's move on to the next topic, Victor. Ah, I'll take ah. that as a W. You, okay. the words you came it. out of your mouth, not mine. Okay. All right. Now, BitCan share prices soared 50% higher in the past six months. Get excited. The, the company with one of the worst names I've ever heard. <laughs> Shares increased by 50% in the last six months. Rise Brock, what a cool name. Rise Brock wrote this. And let me begin by saying, sales enablement software developer BitTinCan. Shares have soared over 50% higher. This is the part that killed me. To $1.33. You know, I'm just like, okay, I guess that's a big jump. 60, 60 something cents to that. Okay. Uh, revenues for the year end uh, of... Look at the interesting revenues for year end June 30th, 2021 were up 42% to 43.9, call it $44 billion. However, increased operating expenses meant that the company's net loss increased <clears throat> year on year from 12 to 13 million, almost 14 million. So they're losing money. And just what are your thoughts on that, Will? You know, here's a company who's growing but losing. I'll uh, I'll be very blunt, Victor. I'm not clever enough to understand how companies work, uh, especially public traded companies who work at a loss, but then are still uh, giving value to shareholders over time. I just don't understand it. Amazon, clearly, I want to invest in Amazon because it's growing every year, yet it's lost money every year that it's been in existence. Clearly, there's uh, tax reasons and probably countless other reasons to to do that, but when these numbers are presented on a screen like this, I, I don't understand them. I wish yeah. I did. I wish I could give you a more uh, uh, more useful answer, but I don't understand how companies go back I and think, forth with this kind of stuff. I think this is a perfect example of eat the fish. A lot of people don't understand eat the fish. So eat the fish basically means is that your investment goes up, but your revenues drop. You know, there's that lump where they're dropping, and then there's an inflection point where they cross, where your revenues now exceed, obviously, your cost. And I think, like, like even a Tesla, I think, is a good example, right? The company, I don't know if they're profitable yet, but I got a feeling in the long run, there's going to hit an inflection point where they're going to really just kill the market. I think so. It's a long-term game, uh, short-term losses, I guess. Anyway, I just thought I'd share that. I, I, uh, but I, it, just, uh, just on that point, just so I understand it, what you're mm -hmm. saying is people are making a bet on the company, which is why share price goes up, even though the day-to-day -day data shows that the revenue and the value yeah. is going down. They're like, yeah. they're, they're mining for gold, but they're not quite there yet. Yeah, their time horizon is stretched out three to five years, whatever it may be. Uh, but, said, but the really big news came a few days prior to the release. This is interesting because it ties back to our previous um, uh, podcast, uh, release of the company's results. That That's when BitCan, Bit. Big Tin Can announced that it was acquiring U.S.-based sales coaching software developer BrainShark at $86 million. That's a big number. You know, I mean, think about it. Revenues for the year were 43, but yet they bought this company for 86 million. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, BrainShark has been around since 1999. I didn't know that. And I thought I'd throw this in there for you, Will, because I didn't realize they employed 180 people. Uh, they got big corporate clients. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, did you know... They were that big. I didn't know BrainShark was that big. A lot of these enablement companies are massive. And I, I'm not commenting on BrainShark specifically. 
because I quite like their website, but you go on some of these companies' websites and it just looks like a mess. And then the content marketing, which is what I'm a specialist in, what I'm interested in, is all over the place. And then you, you're looking at, well, how does the sales team work? Is it inbound? Is like out, out of interest, I'm often looking at these kind of things. And you can't find a way to contact a salesperson, even though you typically would need a salesperson to help um, kind of move the conversation along in these bigger, more complex sales. And then you look and they've got 300 employees and they're doing 80 million in revenue. And then they've not made any money in 27 years, but they're worth $5 billion. It, it blows my mind. There's definitely, um, I don't know whether it's the, the the bubble effect that clearly we're in right now with sales enablement, CRM technologies, that kind of thing, that everyone's betting on the fact that all these companies, all this technology is the new kind of marketing automation of 10 years ago. So there's just unlimited cash being, because we cover all the time, people, companies getting funded when, you know, who am I to say, because I'm no expert in the space, I'm no superstar entrepreneur, but you look at it and you go, well, that looks like a bit of a shitty business that's getting funded, uh, you know, in millions, tens of millions of dollars right off the bat. And so either I just completely don't understand anything or there's other market factors at play that make this uh, more difficult than just a, a pleb like me can understand. Yeah, I mean, no, no, you, you bring up a valid point. I, it has that stench. Maybe stench is too hard of a word. It has that odor. Maybe that's too hard of a word. It has that hint of, <laughs> has that hint of the, the dot-com bust when all these companies were investing in all these internet companies that really didn't have a product or actually had a following. And so a lot of this stuff, I mean, just looking at the plain numbers, they ended the year at 44 still lost money, but yet turned around and bought an $86 million company. You know, and so that, you know, the, and I, by the way, there's smarter people than us probably going through this. But anyway, let me finish this off. Big Tin Can estimated that the annual rev recurring revenue for the combined entities would now reach $119 million by the end of fiscal year 22. By comparison, uh, last year they were at $53 million. I think what they're saying is that that number we're seeing with the loss was before brain sharks numbers are thrown into the pot. Now they're throwing that number into the pot and they're saying, okay, this is going to be good. We're going to make more money next year. So to go from 53 million to 119, that's, that's, that's a doubler right there. That seems quite incredible, but Big Tin Can believes that they can hit that number and setting the expectations high. I was just trying to Google what the name Big Tin Can means. Because it must mean something, right? It's, there's no way that they just came up with uh, three random words. Like, if you are you familiar with the band Real Big Fish, Victor? Real Big Fish? No, I'm not that. Uh, oh. Well, not they that... just they just pulled out three uh, three random words from a hat, and that's where their band name come from. Real Big Fish. Big Tin Can says, "Hey, dude, where do you live? You know, you go down the street, down the alley there. There's a big tin can. There, just take a right there. Maybe that's yeah. how they came up with it." I've, I've tried to Google it. If anyone knows, please drop us a message over at thisweekinsales.com because we talk about them all the time, seemingly. That we have no idea what the name means. Okay, well, let's move on to the next topic here. And this is from uh, martechcube.com. Sales enablement platform, Highspot launches Highspot Marketplace. Challenger, our friends over at Challenger, our friends over at Corporate Visions, our friends over at Sandler, and 20 more leading sales organizations launch new enablement packages on the high, on the high spot marketplace. Jake Braley, VP of Strategic Alliances and Partner Sales over at, HubSpot, over at High Spot says, that name is going to trip me up the whole way through this article, quote, consistent sales rep performance unlocks repeatable revenue growth. Achieving it requires prescriptive approach to positive behavior change and skill development. In the same way that the App Store lets you user download apps, the Highspot Marketplace lets you download content and training packages from leading sales methodology firms directly into your Highspot environment. It's a huge win for sales leaders and sales enablement. Victor, my question for you is, because we've touched on this in the past, right? My question for you is, should these SaaS companies be buying, I don't know if you could buy Challenger or Corporate Visions or Sandler, should they be buying training companies and exclusively having their methodologies baked into their software? Because this seems awesome. And I'm, I'm dead excited for Highspot. Um, I know a couple of people over there and it seemed like they're, they're killing it, right? 
But this is just another marketplace with all of the same trading methodologies on there. It becomes another commodity and you're still trying to compete with the likes of Salesforce who've had the app exchange marketplace there for like a decade and all these customers are probably on there as well. What's the differentiator with this? Is this is this a nice thing to talk about, but will probably never get used? Or is this is, is the true value in having the challenger sale methodology built into uh, your CRM platform uh, more natively? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great idea, right? To have it built in natively. I think a lot of companies are gonna to wanna to build their own. Like for example, well, let's zoom back. You know, I remember when the challenger sale came out, a lot of companies adopted the challenger sale. So if they're trying to find a, a way to quickly integrate it now into their platforms, then this would be a perfect place to go to that marketplace and buy it. So I'm with you on that. I think there's going to be, uh, it's it's flavor of the month, right? Uh, tomorrow they'll look at salesman.org. I said, I want that process, that methodology. But eventually, to your point, Will, is they're going to have to customize a lot of this stuff. And that's the feedback I get a lot. All these companies, bar none, all these companies have a general methodology platform but the real value comes in, somebody coming in or they having somebody actually refine it to fit them. So they offer a general suit, somebody has to come in and tailor the suit for the company or else people are not gonna use it. I so, think it would be interesting to find out uh, what would happen if you tailored something versus if you just got one of these off the shelf deals. So let's flip the table slightly on this and let's look at it from the perspective of these, what do they call them here? Sales methodology firms, sales training companies, right? Is this short-sighted? From their perspective, so over at salesman.org, our training doesn't live anywhere and I don't give it to anyone. You know, there's, uh, everyone knows the, the people that we partner with have asked us to do courses for them, asked us to, uh, uh, offered to pay me to do training um, that they can host publicly on their site. You've told me to do it, Victor, to get some attention and the credibility. And I've held back from doing it just because I want uh, all our content to be exclusive. You know, I, I want people to have to go to salesman.org to get our training. Uh, we, can, we can go back and forth on, on how useful that is and, and the value of that over time. But is it short-sighted that Challenger, Corporate Vision, Sandler, 20 leading sales organizations are putting their content, I assume, for free or a low cost on platforms like this? Or are they seeing it perhaps as lead generation as what you just outlined of, hey, people are going to get a taste of it on the high spot marketplace, but then they're going to have to hire us to come in, consult and actually implement it because you can't do all of this by a software alone. I believe that because what I do with my content is I have a lot of people who've said, hey, I love to put your content on my platform. Mm -hmm. If I don't know them and they don't have a big following, I'm not going to do that. But I will give them a course out of my big library, right? And so I'll give them one course and have at it, go run with it because I see that as a lead generator. People who are on their platforms say, who is this guy? And they'll drive traffic back to mine. Uh, I, I believe that it, I'm interested to see what these companies, and I have to look at the website specifically and say, what are they actually selling? Because I think there's something about the commodity piece that you're onto something here, right? There's something that's bothering me there. If it's if I can just download it and it's just, a, and I have to see how much how much is in there per course, right? Have you did you look at any other courses out of curiosity? Were you able to? Uh, I, I've not got a. There? I've got like comped access yeah. to most CRMs, but I've not got one to high spot, so I couldn't jump yeah. into it. But I can yeah. investigate it. Yeah, no, no. Even I want to look at it to see how much content is really in there. But at the end of the day, maybe they're using that as a way of spreading their message and their methodology. It's like when spin selling first came out way back when. I'm dating myself. Yeah, I don't think I was born. Yeah. yeah. You know what? You know, it's things like that, Will. It's things like that. <laughs> but anyway, so Spin Selling, and you know, that was a Huthwave company. And so that was like 1987. And so when that came I, I out. I was one. I was one when I was that one. Came there out. you go. You were born. And so, but everybody wanted to use the Spin Selling, you know, formula or methodology. And it got a great traction. The company built their business around that. But I don't, I don't know. This one's, it's kind of interesting. You know, I think Highspot just wants to make a commission off of everybody, but I'm, what is the value for these companies to put their stuff on the platform because now you become a commodity? So I'm with you. I, I, I hear your concerns that you don't want to commoditize your training platform slash program. Yeah. And and look, uh, on, on the flip side of what I just said, I give away, you know, you ask me a question about one of our frameworks on a podcast or a guest does or go on someone else's show, I just share everything openly. But there's real value in signing up for Selling Simple Academy and your training as well, Victor, um, the Sales Velocity Academy, because it's it's set up there on the screen. It's a curriculum, the step-by-step. There's other pieces that fit in the puzzle. So I think that there is real value in IP. 
I know these companies have books anyway that outline the, the, the core methodology. So maybe they're just regurgitating a lot of the book content. Um, and then again, using it as almost like a loss leader to get the consulting gigs, which I imagine are incredibly lucrative if you're you're bringing in Challenger to to implement a sales methodology. You're, you're probably talking six, seven figures for a decent sized organization. So maybe that's oh, what easy. the plan is. Easy. I mean, I've seen, I've seen like, I was talking to a company, I won't tell you who it is, but I remember they paid like $1.4 million, $1.4 million. And I saw the training package just so they can use that methodology for the whole company. I'm like, you paid what? And he showed me the binder. I go, he goes, because he says, I'm like, you're holding $1.4 million in your hand, Victor. And I'm like, what? And it was amazing. I mean, and there was, by the way, there were some good case studies in there, some real in-depth case studies that were really good. Uh, I don't know if I would have paid $1.4 million. But, you know, for a company that large, it was a telecom company, if they get one great sale, they got their money back. So they don't care. So this sure. is, I think this, you're right. I think this is big money, big play. Yeah, as I said, we, we talk about, um, we can digress from this in a second, but I find it it's, it's the space we're in, isn't it? The sales training side of things. So, you know, we, 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 we act like we know the software side of things inside and out, but this is what we, we do know, the training side of things. And I find it fascinating that there are now zero barriers to coming up with a slick website, saying you're a sales consultant, sales trainer, however you want to frame it up, having a book that, you know, you could... And it's what I've done inadvertently, not on purpose, of interviewing seven, eight hundred people, pulling all these little snippets and going, hey, I think this is a good starting point, but our methodology, we're going to add these steps, we're going to take this away. Um, moving forward, I think you know, video remote is going to be important, so we'll add these. And so anyone, like a, a schmuck like me, can come up with a methodology, so other people can as well. 20 years ago, obviously, this is way different. You needed probably an office. You probably needed a way to bring salespeople in or go and visit them. So this is a lot more local than what it is now, pre-internet. But I find it fascinating that there doesn't seem to be an explosion of well-known methodologies hitting the marketplace. But there's lots of sales trainers pitching the same methodologies. So my question is, and I've, I've pondered on this before, Victor, is do we understand the steps of the sales process now? Is there no new IP that's going to come out that's going to like the challenger sale with a ton of research behind it? Or Spin Selling had a ton of research behind it as well back in the day. I've read, you know, I've clearly read the book. Um, is there nothing that's, do we know sales inside and out now? Do we have enough data on it that there isn't going to be a new methodology that's going to come in, sweep the decks and, and move all the old guard out and, and usher in a new era of, of methodology to selling? If, if, if we're going based on the last five or 10 years of sales methodologies come out, I don't think anything has really changed, right? I think the last five, 10 years, because, you know, there was a pre-internet, then there's a post-internet. We can kind of divide that, you know, and at post-internet, I think all the the crevices of sales trading have been kind of, you know, uh, you know mm -hmm. di discovered. But what does change, and I think this is interesting, and I think like Gardner seems to be, and Corporate Visions also seems to be right there at the forefront, is understanding how the mindset or the psychology of what buyers are looking for, that's changed. And when they can put that inside their sales methodology, that gives it the value. And how, so I think the, psych, the psychology side of selling is actually changing. And then adopting your methodology to that is what's really different, but you're absolutely right. And that is, I don't think selling has changed. If we look at the bricks, the big foundational mm -hmm. blocks, I don't think it's changed. The only thing that I can see, and you know, you are sales royalty here, so. Uh, myself and the audience need to lean on you as opposed to my opinion. But the only thing I've seen change over the past five years that you know I've been running salesman.org and do these interviews is there's now much more of a focus on the buying journey as opposed to the sales cycle. As in, we're now on the coattails of the buyer as they're going through a journey. How can we shape that? How can we nudge them in the right direction? How can we not piss them off by cold calling them day in, day out versus five, six years ago? It seems like it was a lot more, hey, let's drag the buyer down our funnel and let's see how many of them survive out the other end. Yeah, no, I think that's it. I think the, when I look at the today's buyer journey, you know, there's that infinity loop where now we're looking at more of what happens post sales, not just referrals and follows, but how do we retain customers? I think that's kind of the big add on and even the upselling and the cross selling piece. But other than that, nothing's changed, right? I mean, even if you look at the tools, the tech stack, I mean, my best analogy is, you know, pre-internet, we used the screwdriver. We just tightened it by hand. Now you got a power tool. All right. Still accomplishes the same thing. Maybe one's more efficient. That's about it. So I think you're right. It hasn't changed. We've become more efficient, more wiser, but hasn't changed. Yeah. I guess the you, 
I think you probably hit the nail on the head to continue that analogy, uh, that metaphor. Uh, the biggest paradigm change is probably internet companies charging monthly subscriptions rather than one-off costs. So you can't just be a complete arsehole to your customers and just close deals and sod off. You've got to have customer success involved. You've got to go for these longer-term deals. So maybe that's changing sales and, and pushing it into um, you know the area that we want it to be where people should be hopefully you're going to be proud of working in sales you 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 you're dragging people not dragging people the opposite of that you're you're pulling nudging helping people through a complex buying process and then keeping them on board by adding value as opposed to again the old school used car salesperson who's just trying to flog anything to anyone who comes on the lot yeah and you, you as you're talking you you got me to thinking about you know where can we improve this and so i ask your opinion cuz one of the Areas I don't know how to do this, but I'm just throwing it out there. If there's if if there's a way to get sales training into the head of a salesperson faster, like onboarding, I think that would be an innovative change in selling if we can do yep. that. I don't think we've mastered that yet. You know how to get people up to speed faster. You know any thoughts on that? Well, like how would you like improve retention and absorption and retention? If right, if I and. I, I've had um, uh, venture capital seed uh, and angel um, investors like want to meet me to to discuss my thoughts to this question, right? Because um, you need a million, two million, five million to to not even scratch the surface. I think you could do a pretty good job of it. But in answer to the question, I would want to create, I want to gamify the whole process and turn it literally. You're sat in front of a computer. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to speak into it. We don't need to go down the Siri route of like uh, recognizing voices and tonality and that kind of thing. But that would be the the holy grail. That would be the end goal. You sit down with a potential customer and you go back and forth. That's like the, the easiest bit to do. It could be like a text-based game adventure. It gives you feedback at the end. Your sales manager can uh, see what you've written or see what the, has been highlighted. And I think I think I could almost probably build that now with our team. I'd maybe hire uh, uh, another backend developer but I don't think that would be, uh, in Seth Godin's uh, language, I don't think that would be remarkable. I think people would go, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. But if you could gamify, literally complete, build a addictive game that is addictive in a positive feedback loop of improving your sales skills of, hey, here's the marketplace. Who would you speak to? And you have your different potential customers. You go on like a fake LinkedIn site and you've got the different stats and the different um, the, the different buyer personas and you got this and you got that and it's customized for each organization that you sell this product into so that you are literally prospecting on the on the gaming platform your ideal customers so you're you're, you're doing I can visualize feedback. it I can yeah. see it I can see it I can see it it's almost like a uh, like Grand Theft Auto or something. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Well, well yeah, the exact yeah. opposite of Grand Theft Auto. We're not going around, uh, you know, picking up hookers and uh, <laughs> no. blowing people up. The exact opposite <laughs> of that. But, the, but there are smaller was... indie games yeah. that do similar <laughs> kind of things to this. But you start off one. there, okay, you start off there, you... and then it's just the sales process, but condensed. So you don't have to wait next yeah. week, like you'd have to in the real yeah. life, in the real world, for your meeting. You then you book some meetings, you do the meetings over the next 10 minutes, the meetings are condensed. You have to suss out, well, whether you need to bring in other people into the sale. Uh, there's another decision maker. There's this, there's this. It's not that difficult to visualize. And it's lots of like, it's not AI. There's nothing particularly clever about any of it. It's it's simple game design of if this and that and, and these decision trees use some clever machine learning or some kind of automation to mix it up and add it, make it more real. Um, but that's what I would develop. That is, uh, if, if, if I had unlimited cash, that's what I'd be building right now. And that would be the quickest way to onbound, uh, uh, onboard salespeople. Hey, play this game for a couple of hours a day for the next week. You know, follow some of the other uh, reps within the team, see how they're doing, make some notes. And uh, you can then feedback all the best uh, sales tips, anything that the top reps are, are saying and doing, and, and feed that back into it as well. Use automation software, whatever it is. But g gamifying the process. I would sit and play a... People play Victor, one of the top games on Steam right now, which is a online uh, marketplace of games on, on the PC, is Goat Simulator. Okay. You're a goat. Okay. And you wander I'm, around doing goat I'm, stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm working with you here on this one. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> That's the game. There is Farming yeah. Simulator. 
you there's lorry simulators. We just drive a lorry and the roads are accurate and you'll have crashes and stuff if you don't do things appropriately. People will play the stupidest things. People will invest hundreds and hundreds of hours into dumb shit if there's that little bit of a feedback loop of you do this, you get this slight reward, you get this slight, slight dopamine hit. And the problem is with sales is everything's so uh, protracted out in the real world of, you know, I, I want to book this meeting, so I've got to do this, and then this other thing crops up. Our brains aren't capable of linking one thing to another. You make a sale and you've been working on it for six months, you celebrate, but your brain doesn't really understand this feedback loop and isn't self-fulfilling. Well, if you can compress all of that in your training process and make it addictive to do the training, because most sales training sucks and it's boring, right? If you can make it addictive via input goes in, output comes out, dopamine spike, carrying going, you'd have a bunch of just killer salespeople in an instant. Yeah, and I, and I think embedded in everything you just said is is frequency, right? How often you get to practice within a short period of time. Because I think sometimes when you don't practice enough within a short period of time, it doesn't really go into the brain, so to speak. It, it, you know, I forgot what's the word they use when you have to combine things, concepts, and then really solidify, consolidation is the word yeah. I'm looking for. You, you, by using frequency, like you did a sales pitch within the, in the, in the, in the game, then 10 minutes later, as you pointed out, you do another presentation and within the game, you get some immediate feedback, right? You begin to consolidate what works and what doesn't work through the gaming system. And I, I think it's a great, it's a great approach. I just don't think like VR is there today. Even, don't need you know VR. I mean? you, don't need it. It's just dead simple. Uh, you know, yeah. lowest common dominator, denominator yeah. on a yeah. screen, um, mouse pointer. It's got to be fun. It's got to be interesting. And right. you know, we do some of this over at Salamate Simple Academy, like on a super rudimentary mm -hmm. level of we've got you know a, a flashcard system which is spatial repetition learning. So as you go through each of the training, there's no quiz at the end. All the content goes into the flashcards and we use our characters to say, well, here's a scenario. Sam walks into yada, yada, yada. And then you have to you know, recognize or uh, report back on what the ideal outcome is or what you would do in that situation or what the missing steps of the frameworks are. If you get it right, you don't see that flashcard again. If you imagine a big deck of virtual flashcards, I know, I know you know this, but for the audience, um, it goes to the back and you don't see it for another three months. If you get it wrong, you'll see it tomorrow. If you get it wrong, you'll see it later on today. And you're getting that repetition over and over what you need to learn. And um, the, you know the, the science and all of this is just unequivocal. It's so well studied. But again, into a gaming environment, make it, making something positively addictive is the, is the key, I feel. I think so. Yeah. I, again, the addictive piece is interesting. If you can find one of those, you know, again, I use Grand Theft Auto. What's the, what's the most recent game that's out there now? Uh, I'm drawing a blank. But uh, you know, where you're actually going around collecting things. I can yep. see this visual simulator, as you pointed out. I actually see them going to LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Sorry, mate, yeah. I've interrupted you there. Yeah. All we need to do is, we, we're overcomplicating this. Go back to first principles. Sales training, addictive. Yeah. How do you make it addictive? We Dang. give salespeople a lecture and then give them some heroin. Lecture, okay. heroin. You know, I think I want the title of this week in sales podcast to be <laughs> Goats and Heroin. That's it. I mean, brought to you by Will Barron himself. <laughs> All right, let's go to the next subject. <laughs> okay, so let's move into some sales training news. So this is an article from phys.org, as in physics.org. Now, I've tried to break this down in the doc. It's still overcomplicated, and so we'll go through this slowly, but I think there's real value in this article, in this data, in this science, because it's actual science that sales training has been, uh, kind of, or assumptions have been tested on the back of, as opposed to the current kind of, I know corporate visions do a lot of uh, research, but a lot of sales training methodologies is just, hey, I did this once and it worked, and then a thousand people go and do it and copy it and, and ruin whatever uh, tip or hack or trick was done in the first place. So this is from phys.org entitled, Why Salespeople Avoid Big Whales Sales Opportunities. Research has published a new paper in the Journal of Marketing that tests a framework of salespeople's decision-making when prospecting. The study is entitled, Why Salespeople Avoid Big Whale Sales Opportunities. Now, the finding is contrary to the intuition that salespeople gravitate towards big whale sales opportunities. In reality, salespeople avoid them. So counterintuitive, right? This new study integrates contingent decision-making and conservation of resources theories, you may be more familiar with these theories than me, I've definitely no idea what they mean, to develop and test a framework of salespeople's decision-making while prospecting. 
the researchers make three contributions to the marketing literature. They have three discoveries from this training, uh, from this research, essentially. First, salespeople conduct rational benefit cost analysis to decide what opportunity to pursue. They shed light on the tension underlying such decisions and the challenges of the intuition of the salesperson to gravitate towards large opportunities. Essentially, salespeople go, that's a big opportunity. That might be a lot of work. I don't know if I'm motivated to do that. I'm not doing it. Whereas you'd think that salespeople would go, friggin' hell, look at the size of the opportunity. I'm all over it. I'm going to look like the hero. So that was the, the first, uh, what they found, the first element that they found was counterintuitive. Does that surprise you, Victor? That does not surprise me so far. But I, I love the way they try to describe it. The benefits can be intrinsic and intrinsic. While the costs can be explicit, i.e. resources expended, time and effort, or implicit opportunity costs. It's interesting. It surprised me. But it's not surprising. Did surprises it? me. Yeah, I've never turned down a large deal on the fact that, and, you know, and to the point of the research, I will do what they're describing here of work out, even if it's subconsciously, the amount of effort that I've got to put in to the resources to get back out the other side. But I basically, when I was in medical device sales, I would hit my quota every year, typically from getting smashing one large deal and doing the usual stuff that would come in. Um, which would drive my sales managers mad because I'd be like down all year, bottom of the, well, not bottom, but in the middle of the leaderboard. And I'd, I'd shoot back up towards the end of the year whenever the deal would come in and they'd be stressing, they'd be on my back the whole year. You know, well, is this deal ever going to come in? And um, I would be lying to their faces with my forecasting just to get them off my back, which obviously then creates a feedback loop of stress within the organization. But I would always, I would never shy away from a big deal. So this, this shocked, not shocked, but this did surprise me. I, I think when we're looking at, you know, I'll, I'll take my corporate, I'll put my corporate hat on. From the corporate side, just like you, man, we were always going out. We want big whales. In mm -hmm. fact, we ignored guppies. Like, I don't want the guppy. That's too small, too small, too small. Give me the big whale. That's the one. That's the one. And you, we tried to get, you know, the low-hanging fruit and some easy deals here and there. But but I'm wondering if this study is also talking about, let's put it in the context of salespeople in, in, in a let's say a broader market that's, that, you know, it is no big, you know, because sometimes you would get a deal be like a million, two million dollars, five million dollars, right? Yep. But maybe some of these guys, guys or gals, are seeing on average deals of 10 to 20,000, then they see a $1 million deal, they're like, that's too big. Mm -hmm. That'll never be for me, I'll never be, why even yep. try? And I'm wondering if, if, if it's the disparity or the gap between the average of what they're used to and this big whale that goes, nah, I don't know if I can do that. I wonder if you know what I mean. We're oh, used to the sure. one million dollar deals, yeah. For sure, uh, so there's definitely like a mindset element to this. We've never. I need to publish some of this data. We've had like two thousand people go through our sales code assessment now, and there's there's a clear, obvious link between optimists doing larger deal sizes and more revenue a year versus pessimists doing more but smaller deal sizes and overall less revenue. We've got like th literally thousands, like it's now statistically significant the amount of data that we've got, and it's it's clear as night and day. So I think you're on something here of I, mindset, I, optimism, and that side of yeah. things. Yeah, I want to highlight something here because I think what you just said is super important. And there was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Martin Seligman who wrote a book years ago called Learned Optimism, and he talked about very shortly the explanatory style. It's how you explain things to yourself that determines whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, and that's kind of what you're highlighting here, right? Some people go, yeah. Other people are like, oh totally different mindset. For sure. They've done very, the, the best study on optimism and pessimism is they glue a one pound coin, they're doing it in the UK, I'm sure they're doing it elsewhere, to the floor. Hmm. And then they just see people walking past it, optimists will pick it up, pessimists will pick it up. Then they'll interview them at the end and optimists typically, well not typically, significantly, uh, statistically significantly will earn more money so the people who try to pick up the coin are uh, richer, wealthier, and uh, more happy with the kind of outlook on life. Yeah, I've, I've seen one with a, uh, they put a money tree outside. And then again, the pessimists won't pick out the money from yep. the tree. And it's because they're like, thinking, oh, you know, someone's dropped this, or this is weird, this is some kind of scam, and the office go, yeah. oh yeah, great. <laughs> it takes their dollar key yeah. pocket. Go ahead, go ahead. Okay, so uh, we won't we won't dwell on this because uh, I, I feel like this is uh, towards the end of the show. This is quite heavy yeah. to be uh, kind of running through, but I'll go through the second point mm -hmm. here because we've touched on it. Second, the study demonstrates that salespeople use calibration calibration decision making strategy, i.e., calculating the expecting benefits by counting for conversion uncertainty for solution selling at the portfolio level. 
Counterfactual analysis showed that in solution selling, ignoring the calibration effect leads to serious under or overestimation of conversion rates. I think what they're trying to highlight here is salespeople are terrible at predicting whether things are going to come in or not. It's just terrible at forecasting. Anyone in sales management will know that. And my prior anecdote, my prior anecdote I used to lie to sales management all the time and tell them things were coming in when I had no idea, just to get them off my back. Well, so, I think salespeople are generally optimistic, so you always course, start seeing yeah. the upside of the deal every time. Yeah, but you don't want to come to your sales manager and be like, yeah, well, I've done a terrible job on all of these leads that have come in. And so, yeah, uh, maybe, you, maybe, maybe, you, maybe you should just sack me and, on the spot. We're never going to we, go down that route. By, by the way, we would only become very pessimistic in the fourth quarter because sure. we would try to downgrade the actual expectations yep. of our boss, and they wouldn't give a higher quarter the next year. I said, yeah, I don't know, fourth quarter's looking a little hard there. I don't know when I might be able to hit that number, so, but I'm going to do my best. Yeah, we, we, we would do that individually and be like, well, you know, Barry's on that territory, and that hospital's killing it, big expansion. Yeah. Oh, there's nothing going on in my patch. And then you know down well that there's three sad new developments bagging. and five theaters come along. Total sad bagger. Go ahead. Okay, so I'll wrap up with this. Simulations revealed that when high performers or inexperienced salespeople believe their portfolio magnitude is large and the conversion rate is un uncertainty is low, their quota attainment can be improved by as much as 50%. I'll say that again. Simulations reveal that when high performers or inexperienced salespeople believe their portfolio magnitude is large, so the opportunity, I guess, and conversion is un conversion uncertainty is low, the quota attainment can improve by as much as 50%. So what they're saying here is your view on the marketplace, whether that be true or not, can affect your quota attainment, which is what we've been talking about. I love the fact that they inserted simulations revealed that when high performers or inexperienced salespeople, because sometimes inexperienced salespeople come in, we've all seen that effect. They should give that an effect, a name. You know, when they don't know it any better and they just start killing it. And then when they know too much, they stop killing it. Yep. And I think we've talked about this in the past that they stop listening to the customer and just really stop being empathetic because now they know and then their numbers start going down. I, I like that. That's great. So I'm, I'm actually really dig into this study. So that's a good find, Will. Sure. Uh, unfortunately, to our previous debate, this is uh, it's been posted on the Journal of Marketing. I don't know if there is a Journal of Selling. So maybe you're onto something. Maybe marketing do control everything. But with that, Victor Antonio, let's move on to Culture Corner. Hopefully, Adam, mm -hmm. uh, our wonderful video editor, can throw this can throw this picture up on the screen right now so the audience can see what we're seeing. Yes, this is Pebbles, my little Dachshund, oh, oh. my 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 blue and tan dachshund with her bike helmet. Will ask me, is the dog going to have a helmet? I took this picture. This is just for you, Will. So I got my electric bike, the Rad Runner One, super electric bike, promo to Rad Runner. And anyway, Pebble looks really cute in this man. So she's really cute. I, I assume this isn't a, like a safety device. It's just a cuteness device. It's a cuteness device. Yeah. It's just decorative. So I have. I bought her a basket with an encasing basket that she can now put her in the basket. So there's no way she can actually jump off the bike. But she she seems to love it. She stays really still. I put her in the front basket. And she just her ears fly up <laughs> as we go fat. It's a beautiful thing, man. But hey, well, I found this graphic online, and I didn't post a graphic. I just this is what the graphic said it, and it said I want to get your thoughts. Fifteen years ago, uh, the internet was an escape from the real world. Today, the real world is an escape from the internet. What are your thoughts on that as we close this out? Uh, my thoughts on that are that if you're an idiot, it's true. If you're addicted to the internet, it's true. If you're addicted to unlimited feeds and scrolling and the computer game that I'm going to make to train salespeople in the next five years as, as funding starts to flow our way, Victor, on the back of okay. this amazing show. <laughs> All right. Um, but yeah, if you, if you, if I'll ask you thoughts on this, but that it doesn't, I don't feel like that. Um, I don't feel any relation to that whatsoever. When you said that, like, that's not me, but if the audience were like that, you're describing how I feel right now, then you need to delete Facebook off your phone, Get rid of Twitter, uh, get rid of LinkedIn off your phone. I don't even have an email app on my phone. Uh, if I really need to get an email, I'll just go on the browser and go to uh, gmail.com and, and log in. And it's a pain in the ass to log in because my password is a big mess of numbers and letters. So I've got to use a password manager to get in there. If you feel like the internet is something that needs to be escaped from, that is a, uh, a prison of your own creation. 
Oh, I agree. I was looking up screen time because this really is a, is a um, it's a, a two part commentary. One is that we have we're spending too much time with the with the phone scrolling, as you're saying. You're obviously not one of these people. But I have a lot been. Of people sorry, are, like, yeah. just to kind of um, double down on this point, I have been. I've not got it with me. I've got an endoscope here that I can pull on the table. But other than no, that, don't. I, I switched to a dumb phone for like a year. Like a crappy, tiny little sliding phone, didn't even have a camera right. on. And the not having a camera was the only reason I went back to a smartphone because it's a pain in the ass to carry a camera around with you as well. Um, but that's how I beat my internet addiction and you know specifically mobile phone addiction. And I've got tons of anecdotes of, like I've met tons of people just stood in a queue where everyone's on the phone, you're not on a phone and you end up just chatting to people and, and making connections and um, daft stuff like that. Um, I know it sounds like something that you would say as an old man, right? And it's coming from a young, fit, uh, you know, good-looking, in-shape person like myself. But, you know, we should be off our phones. I'm going away to the Lake District next week, and there's no phone signal. That's one of the best bits about it. There's no internet connectivity. No point in taking a laptop. We have to literally take DVDs and Blu-rays because you can't even get Netflix. I would just chill for a week. It's, uh, you know. You know, one of the things I think our audience will take away from this podcast is your modesty. I think that's one thing that you definitely take away. Your level of modesty is incredible. It's, it's enviable, actually. My, my level okay. of modesty and your like passive aggressiveness, that's that's what they'll take away. <laughs> okay. Hey, by the way, the, uh, so here, here's the issue. In the U.S., kids between the age of 8 and 12 spend an average of 46 hours per day looking at screens, while teenagers spend as much as nine hours, Will. Nine hours. So, so my comment there that I highlighted from this uh, uh, image I saw was that Two things are happening. One is the amount of screen time young people are spending, but also the 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 level of vitriol, or I'll just say contentious arguments online, and there's just the negativity, right? And I, and I bring this to your attention because I went on Twitter just to see if my video was posted correctly because I like to use that as an outbound, sure. you know, not an inbound type of thing because I don't like to be on Twitter. But I just remember I clicked what's trending, clicked on it, and it was just just negative. Like, and I was like, okay, time to leave this thing real quick. And I was that's kind of why that quote hit me hard. Like, you know what? You got to go back to the real world to escape the internet now because there's so much negative stuff out there. Except our podcast, of course, which Dude, is totally positive. I, I don't even watch the news. I will literally I, avoid I don't have the news. I, I've got, if it, we talked about this before, if it doesn't happen within like one or two people away from me, as in, mm -hmm. you know, Dunbar's number, of we, we're, we're designed, our brains are built to know 150 people. And we know that we know these individuals via, via gossip. That's how a tribe, um, communication across a tribe works. If, you know, a global pandemic, COVID is slightly different. But typically, if there's something going on and it's on the news and it doesn't affect me or doesn't affect someone that I know, then I don't care. I've got, I've got no interest in it. There's other people on the planet who are, you know, in better positions to deal with these kind of things than what I am. But I don't consume that. Uh, beef on LinkedIn, all this kind of weird stuff. The problem is it's a great way to drive attention and it's a great way to make a shit ton of money if you can uh, news hack and create beefs, go back and forth, argue. And, you know, people probably entertained about me and you debating things, but obviously there's no bad blood here. And we're only, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm a joke about it, but things can get very serious very quick. So I just yeah, avoid I agree. it all entirely. I agree. I'm with you. Anyway, that was an interesting quote. Okay, have you yeah. seen what China are doing with kids playing computer games? No, I have not. What are they doing? So this is an article from CNN.com. China has barred online games under the, for children under the age of 18 from playing on week, from weekdays and limited play to just three hours on most weekends. This wow. is because they're so, they're so concerned about kids being addicted to screens. Sure. By the way, I, there's something to it. I mean, I, I don't agree with the move. I, you know, too much social engineering for my own taste, if you know what I mean. But I understand the concern. I don't agree with the uh, sure. with the tactic. There's but definitely that, something to this, Victor. Of there is uh, like there a, is. A, a, you know, a creating a I'm going to call it positive addictions. That's that's my new computer game called right. positive addictions. If you could create software, the problem is training is typically boring yeah. as shit, right? Right. If you could teach people uh, how to play, I know this is musical instruments and things like that are gamified. If you can gamify maths, things that are interesting, and pull people from the law of Grand Theft Auto and get them into something else that isn't just a load of crap because most educational games and content, even when I was growing up, were rubbish. Um, the, you could add like, real value to the world if you, could, if you could somehow pull that off. 
Yeah, but you know, I, you know, immediately what came to my mind was that that typical newspaper line: if it if it if it bleeds, it leads, right? Sure. That people don't want good news; people just want the bad stuff. I think with with regard to games, I think again, you're right. I mean, it's one of those things where that the addiction is there, but it's all negative addiction. That's why I like your positive addiction uh, company name. So, go forward, man. Do it, Will. Do I'm, it. I'm positive addiction. This. I'm going to ponder this over the next week. Uh, Victor, are we wrapping up there, mate? Anything else to add? Man, we are good. Uh, let me see. Nothing new. We got. Uh, I'll be doing something with uh, Selling Power Magazine, a sales acceleration uh, workshop. Uh, I'll give you details, but we can put those in the show notes. But other than that, all is good. How about yourself? Closing out? Nothing new. Nothing new to add. I think we'll have some uh, things to talk about in the next few weeks of some of our listeners are going to be writing some content over at salesman.org. So that is awesome. Um, and I'll plug that again in a few weeks' time or a couple of months' time to uh, keep that cadence up because I'm happy to promote the audience. I'm happy to get the content, their ideas on our on our little platform and hopefully share their ideas and, and see if we can make them spread. So with that, that was Sales Royalty, Victor Antonio. My name is Will Barron, find over at salesman.org and uh, we'll speak with you again on next week's This Week in Sales. <laughs> <laughs>